0: A reading from Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Behold, my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: A reading from the Gospel of John. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one, crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before, who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The word of the Lord.
2: So, begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way far, far less of me and far, far more of you. That your people gathered virtually would be edified and your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Who are you? It's a central question, identity question that we spend much of our lives seeking an answer to. Who are you? Where do you go to answer that question? Where do you find your identity? And what impact does that have on you and on those around you? Who are you? Most often in our Western secular individualism, we look for an answer to that question in our accomplishments, our successes, our positions, our titles. We've all probably been to those mingling events, whether social or professional, where we get to know one another by way of small talk. What are the questions we ask of one another to get to know one another? We ask questions of job, title, School we attended, vacation plans, which is usually a roundabout way to discover how much money a person makes. Where do you live in the city? What are your interests, your family situation? These questions tell us that who we are is the sum of our accomplishments, our successes, our position, our possessions, our title. Who are you? Some of us come from or are most influenced by traditional cultures where there are very clear expectations of what it means to be a woman, a man, a daughter, a son, a wife, mother, husband, father, and who we are is answered by those cultural expectations and our adherence to them. We have a bit of a Western individualistic spin on this when we at times define ourselves by our kids, our grandkids, that their successes, their failures, tell us who we are, defining our sense of self, of worth, of identity. Who are you? Others of us reject such societal and cultural expectations Other people don't get to define who I am. I define who I am. And so you do you and I'll do me. But we know, right? That our sense of self, our internal standards are never stationary. They're constantly evolving. And so there are times we feel incredibly integrated in our sense of self and at other times acutely aware that we aren't being true to ourselves. We aren't even living up to our own internal standards. Who are you? Each of these ways of answering that central identity question sets up an inevitable pendulum swing. When we're successful, accomplished, fulfilling cultural expectations, being true to ourselves, we feel secure, settled, confident, But because part of that identity is comparative in nature, I am more than, better than, others often perceive us as arrogant, judgmental, entitled. But it only takes a moment, a failure, a word spoken, an internal shift, and the pendulum swings the other way. And there's fear, insecurity, self-loathing. Who are you? Where do you get your identity from? And what impact does that have on you and on those around you? This year, starting at our 7.30 Christmas Eve service, we began a series in the Gospel of John. Following that ancient tradition in the church of taking the time between Christmas and Easter to deepen in our understanding of appreciation for and trust in Jesus Now, not every gospel begins with Jesus' birth, but every gospel opens with John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one sent ahead to reveal, to prepare hearts to receive him. And John's gospel is unique in that that revealing, that preparation is done in the context of a conversation that is all about identity, where the central question is, who are you? And John answers that question in a way that is utterly different from any of the other ways that we often answer that question. And as we'll see, where he locates his identity, shapes and forms him in ways that are utterly, utterly transformative. So if you have your Bible handy, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter one. Now, I don't think we as modern readers appreciate how big a deal John was. I mean, there had not been a prophet in Israel in some 400 years. It seemed as if God were silent at a time that his voice would be most yearned for as the people are under the thumb of Rome's oppression. And then all of a sudden, out in the desert, bearing all the marks of the prophets of old, comes John the Baptist. His presence, his message, so compelling that the other Gospels tell us that people from across the nation of Israel are flocking out into the desert to see him, To hear him, news gets to the religious establishment. This new figure with his compelling influence over the populace, his charisma, is set to undermine their power, their influence. And they send a delegation to him with the question that is in the forefront of everyone's mind. Who are you? And John immediately directs attention away from himself. I am not, I am not, I am not. I am not the Christ. Well, then are you Elijah, the promised forerunner? I am not. Well, then are you the prophet? The prophet that Moses said was going to be like him? I am not. He denied it all. It's striking, really. Their impression of him and what he was doing has led them to assign to him the highest titles they could conceive of you'd think that what was going on around him would have left him to question, who am I? What have I got caught up in here that that the people are flocking to me from across the nation? The power brokers of our nation are thinking that I might be God's chosen one. You'd think, because it's quite natural to human behavior for this to start to go to his head. To be tempted to use this for personal gain, for personal benefit, and yet he accepts none of it. I am not, I am not, I am not. He is not looking to himself to answer that central identity question. Then who are you? The delegation presses. I am the voice. I am the voice. He's quoting from Isaiah 40, the turning point of the entire book. Isaiah was a figure who some 700 years before this moment was grieving over Israel, that they had turned their back upon God and as a result had fostered a society of oppression and corruption and greed where the poor, the widow, the orphan were being taken advantage of. A society where all aspects of human brokenness pervaded And in the book, Isaiah is calling the people back to God, warning that God will not sit idly by, that if they continue to foster idolatry, corruption, injustice, God will come in judgment. But then in chapter 40, Isaiah shifts his focus from judgment to a time where God will comfort Israel where God himself will come and gather his people with grace, forgiveness, love, and mercy, changing their hearts, changing their nation. And that turning point opens with the words, I am the voice, crying out in the wilderness, make straight his paths. To answer that central identity question, who are you? John doesn't look at himself. He looks to another, make his paths straight. And who is the other that he looks to to define himself? Well, the rich imagery of Isaiah helps us. Make his paths straight, lift up the valleys, level the hills, smooth out the uneven ground You see, if a king were to come to a city or a town in the realm, a messenger would be sent ahead, a voice calling the people to prepare. And part of that preparation involved road work. See, in the ancient world, there was no engineers, no heavy machinery. And so if you were going from one town to another and there was a boulder, you'd go around it, a valley, you'd go down through it, a hill, you'd go up over it. That would do for regular traffic. But when a king and all of his entourage would, were coming, that, that would not do. The valleys would have to be filled in. The hills brought low. The uneven ground leveled. John is saying, our Lord King is coming. Get ready. Now, one of the things that is fascinating about human literature is that in all of our cultural myths and legends and stories, we have a, a common storyline. And the storyline takes this form, that at one point there was a great king who ruled with wisdom, power, justice, compassion. And When that king ruled, there was peace and prosperity across the land. But something has taken that king away and now darkness and decay And there's this yearning for the day when the king will return and make everything new. Just think in some of our Western stories. You've got Robin Hood fighting the darkness that has descended upon the land as the king is away yearning for Richard the Lionheart to return. King Arthur reigns, it's Camelot, but when he's gone, darkness even more recently, in J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there's the hope that the true king resides in the north, and when he comes and takes his throne, there will be healing in the land. Tim Keller, who is the former pastor of Redeemer in New York City, reflects on this common storyline and wonders if, in that storyline, there is a memory trace that within our human race, within you and me, there was a, a memory of a great king who did reign with justice, compassion. But now that king is gone and darkness and decay have settled upon the earth. And we yearn for his return. And somewhere deep within us is the knowledge that we were made to know that king, to serve that king, to love that king, to define ourselves as John did in relation to that king. Who are you? John doesn't look to himself. He looks to the coming king. And what does John, the voice, say about the coming king that fills out his identity? Well, John names two striking distinctives. First, verse 29, behold the Lamb of God. Second, verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove, like a dove. The biblical account of creation opens with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness covered the earth. And the spirit of God hovered over the waters. And that verb hovered in Hebrew refers to a bird fluttering And to make the image even more vivid, the Targum, the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures that all of those around John would have been familiar with, adds the words, The Spirit of God hovered like a dove. And at Jesus' baptism, John recalls the same scene I saw the Spirit of God descend on him like a dove. The implications are stunning. That God is about a work of recreation in this King Jesus, making the entire cosmos new. As Isaiah affirms in his prophetic retelling, God has put his spirit upon him to bring forth justice to the nations. But how? How will that come about? Well, John, the voice, reveals, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who wipes sin's impact, its power, away. As the voice of Isaiah from our first reading continues to describe this coming king, there's a shift. This king, this chosen one, will also be a suffering servant. And in the words of Isaiah, he will be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter who bears our griefs, carries our sorrows, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. Behold the Lamb of God. Who are you? And John doesn't look to himself. I am not, I am not, I am not. He looks to another. Your central identity question can only be answered in relation to the coming, recreating, suffering king. What impact, then, does that have on John, on those around him, as he roots his identity there? Well, first, there's incredible humility. In relation to this coming, recreating, suffering king, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. In every culture and every time there was a job so menial, so degrading that only the lowest of the low could do it. Everyone else was forbidden to do so. And in this culture, the most menial, the most degrading job to do would be to untie the strap of someone's sandal. And John says in light of him, I'm not even worthy to do that. Here's a person who's the talk of the nation. The power broker is wanting to define them by the highest titles they could conceive of. And yet, and yet, a humility. A humility not born of self-loathing or of failure, but a humility as C.S. Lewis defines it. that is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. For John is consumed with beholding, the coming, recreating, suffering king. But alongside that humility comes an attribute that we don't normally see paired with it. Boldness, courage, fearlessness. We're used to people being bold and courageous out of a sense of their power, their privilege, their success. But John's boldness is of a different stock. And its impact on those around him, stunning. See, people are flocking to see him, to hear him. And Luke tells us that his is a message of repentance. Bold repentance. Tax collector, don't take more than is your due. Soldier, don't use your power to extort. Rich, give away everything but what you need. Now, what would lead them go and hear such a message, to respond such a message. Well, John's courageous call to repentance, I suspect, was heard because it bore not a hint of judgment, not a hint of moral superiority, it was rather bathed in humility, for it was born of an identity rooted in a coming, recreating, suffering king. But perhaps what stands out most about John's witness, what the religious establishment zero in on, is his baptizing. Okay, so if you aren't Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, then why are you baptizing? And I think we hear that as a question of propriety. If you aren't one of these religious figures, then why aren't you doing religious things? What gives you the right to do this? But it's not that he's doing it that's the problem. It's how he's doing it. You see, baptism was only for the outsider, the non-Jew, the Gentile. And it signified the washing away of impurity. And it was something you did to yourself. You see, for the Jew, the entire world was split into two different kinds of people. Jews and everyone else. Jews and Gentiles. And they saw that God had called them as Jews to be distinct from the Gentiles. But God's desire in that distinctiveness was for the sake of the Gentiles. But what had begun to slip in is that distinctiveness made them better than superior to. The Orthodox Jewish man would wake up every morning to pray, I thank you, God, I wasn't born a woman, a slave, a Gentile. At this time, Jews would say that the Gentiles were made by God to fuel the fires of hell. It was not lawful for a Jew to help a pregnant Gentile woman in need because the only result of that would be to bring another Gentile into the world. If a Jew married a Gentile, their funeral was carried out. They were written off. By allowing themselves as Jews to be baptized by another was to say, I'm no different, no better than a Gentile. I need God's forgiveness as much as anyone else. And more than that, I can't change myself. I can't fix myself. I need help outside myself. I need forgiving grace. What could possibly lead John to believe such a thing? To invite others through baptism to affirm such a thing? that had huge implications on the way that they lived, the way that they related, undercutting the very foundation of their racial prejudice. It arose out of the central question. Who are you? And John doesn't look to himself. I am not, I am not, I am not. He looks to another. To the coming, recreating, suffering king. But he was wrong about himself, wasn't he? He was one of the titles the religious elite sought to give him. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, Jesus says, John was the forerunner, Elijah. And adds, he was the greatest human being who ever lived. But then he adds, the least in my kingdom will be greater than John the Baptist. And I think partly meaning by that that the transformation wrought in John will be nothing compared to the transformation wrought in us through our relationship with him, our defining of ourselves in light of him. And so let me ask who are you? Don't look to yourself, to your successes, accomplishments. Your adherence to cultural expectations, your being true to yourself. I am not, I am not, I am not. Instead, look to him. Behold Jesus, the recreating, suffering, and now returning King. For we're able to behold Jesus in a way that John never could. John baptized with water, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that descended upon Jesus as a dove that through him was to recreate the entire cosmos now in Christ resides in us, recreating us in his image. John, beholding Jesus, led him to say, I'm not worthy even to untie the strap of his sandals. But we behold that on the night before Jesus died, He knelt down in front of his disciples, unbuckled the strap of their sandals, and washed their feet. And by doing so, he was pointing towards something he did for you. That on the cross, God and Jesus got down on his hands and knees, unbuckled the strap of your sandals, exposing what you wouldn't want anyone else to see, wouldn't even want to acknowledge in yourself, and washed you clean. John's beholding of Jesus led him to bear witness in baptism to a new way of being, of doing, of relating. And our beholding of Jesus can lead us to bear witness to a glorious future where Jesus will return to make everything new, every evil undone, every wrong righted, every ill healed, every sorrow consoled. Who are you? Let us, like John, define ourselves in relation to him. In Christ, I am a child of God, beloved, delighted in. In Christ, I am completely forgiven and washed clean. In Christ, I have the Spirit of God living in me, recreating us him, me in his image. In Christ, I bear witness to an entirely new reality. In Christ, I am an heir to a glorious future. Who are you? I am not, I am not, I am not. I am who I am in Christ. Amen.
1: You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.